Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Artificial intelligence has grown too big for anyone to ignore. Now the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory has established a Center for Artificial Intelligence. Here with what it will do, the lab's chief scientist for artificial intelligence, Court Corley. Dr. Corley, good to have you with us. Thanks. I'm very glad to be here and share with you more about the Center for AI at PNNL. And we didn't mean to imply that you've been ignoring it until now and just getting into it, but a special center for it. Tell us why that's happening now. Sure. The Department of Energy's national laboratories you know, are a crown jewel of science and technology development for the United States and have been for quite some time. At PNNL, we're a Department of Energy Office of Science stewarded laboratory which means that we have been developing analytics and science in service of the nation for quite some time, decades in fact. You know, what's different today is that as we're seeing all throughout business and industry and government that AI is really having a significant impact across the range of missions that we have. You know, at the laboratory, we have missions in scientific discovery, energy sustainability, and national security. And just by fact of the size of our organization, there are you know, roughly 6,000 staff. About two-thirds of those are scientists or engineers just in our own laboratory, which is you know, one of many national laboratories in the nation. And because of how we're organized, we have pockets of AI research, AI application, scientific discovery, AI engineering, and all the things in between that are really doing incredible work. But what we need to do now and why we created the center is really to help us aggregate that collective experience, be able to drive impact, elevate priorities, and really go after some really global challenges that are facing us. So then the center is a way to make sure that there is no duplication of effort, or will you actually do artificial intelligence research within the center itself? So we'll do a couple different things. Absolutely, we will be driving AI research and really pursuing the areas that are going to help us advance AI and our science, energy, and security missions. And that's going to be really exciting. In addition, we're going to be applying AI in all the different areas that we're working in, you know, specifically things like controlling the power grid. So you know, right now, our power generation and distribution is very intermittent. And the methods that are used today work. It's amazing that our, our grid is up. But for the future, and with the increase of clean energy, new energy resources coming online, we need additional methods to really help us be able to manage that effectively for our nation. So that's like one example of the types of things that we've been working on. So it's, it's both. It's driving research and it's the application. Yeah, you want to make sure everyone's not doing the same thing in six different places and then you Absolutely. waste effort. Yeah. And just a detailed question on the grid, because that is in private hands and there sure. are you know quasi-regulatory bodies that make sure the grid is managed you know in a way that one region can communicate with the other. These are reliability councils and so forth. What is going on with respect to AI? Where can AI, so far as we know now, help in yeah. grid reliability and distribution of electricity and all those things? So one of the roles that the National Labs play in PNL is really in providing tools. You know, we won't be the ones that operate the grid. We won't be the ones that control it. But everything from intermittent generation based on renewables, that's a need for better types of control. 
battery design for better batteries and energy storage for their intermittent generation. So those are areas where we can build tools and capabilities that we can then partner with our regional utilities and otherwise to support and distribute those. And do you think it's possible maybe that, I mean, utilities have really good data on demand by the hour and demand by the minute, and so they can tailor their operations to what they know is going to happen, like a heat wave is coming or something. Can AI, do you think, enhance that, make it more fine-grained, especially, as you say, with intermittent generation, which is a nice way of saying the sun doesn't always shine and you don't want things to happen to blackout because we love solar energy? Absolutely. So kind of taking a step back and looking at what the needs are in artificial intelligence right now, you know, we do have a need to do submeter resolution forecasting for weather. And today that is such a challenge to do that with our current methods. We do a decent job, but I believe that the new class of AI that's coming online, you know, the frontier AI that, you know, we see commercial gains from it, you know, with ChatGPT, you have to say that, uh, but what does it mean for the sciences? And for energy is equally compelling. You know, it's Andrew Ng in 2017 said AI is the new electricity because it's going to touch everything that we do. And I do believe it's going to help us, you know, at the large scale, you know, where we do need tens of thousands of GPUs to train a model. That is the place where DOE traditionally has excelled with the exascale computing program and so forth. We're speaking with Dr. Court Corley. He is the chief scientist for artificial intelligence in the AI and data analytics division at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. And you bring up a good point in trying to understand energy issues. AI consumes tons of energy. There's even published pieces on how much energy it could consume, almost like Bitcoin mining. We need data fields and so forth for this. And you've been following AI for a long time. What is the future of AI to maybe solve its own energy consumption needs? Is that even something people are thinking about? So I think there's, you know, a couple of different solutions that we have to address as a nation. One, the energy consumption is astounding. Renewables and clean energy is the way to go about that. And I think the investment of the nation of, you know, if we set a goal, let's say we set a goal of achieving clean energy by 2035, how are we going to do that? Well, we need to focus on things like energy efficient electricity. I mean, energy efficient GPUs, energy efficient AI training, energy efficient methods. And even in the past six months, there's been advances in the AI research that shows you can have exceptional gains by building smaller models that are still just as worthwhile, but they're domain specific. And so perhaps there's a way that we can develop maybe more energy efficient methods that are going to help us in the long run reduce energy consumption. Because right now, yes, you are correct that the energy needs are quite astounding for these large systems. And have you found, too, that you don't necessarily need limitless data sets for every application, but maybe you get better training with more limited data sets and therefore less consumption? Absolutely. So there's one approach in the realm of scientific machine learning where we really constrain the models by the known laws of physics. You know, we'd say these are the laws of conservation. And by incorporating those into uh, the models themselves, absolutely, we need less data. We need less compute. They become more understandable, which is really what we need for something that is so critical in a high consequence system, something that is going to behave in a way that is safe and secure and reliable. And by adding in physics, that's one way that we can do that to reduce the complexity within the systems. And are there models, too, going to the large end of things where you would bring econometrics into energy modeling? For example, we could have clean energy tonight, except the economy would collapse and everyone would starve to death. So we don't want that either. 
because every gallon of gas, every cubic meter of natural gas that's consumed is someone pursuing their life's goals and their occupation. And so is that something people are looking at is to have some kind of grand design so we could get better answers on how all of this can work? So it is a a tough challenge. And for myself and our organization, we don't have uh, economists necessarily on staff, but those are really critical questions that the nation is going to have to answer. One of the ways that we get around that, though, is through partnerships. You know, as a national lab, we love our our partnerships and rely on them to build complementary expertise and the things that we work on. One of the efforts we work on is with the other Office of Science and other uh, national labs. For example, there's a new consortium called the Trillion Parameter Consortium that Argonne National Labs launched with Oak Ridge. And I think now there's 100 different joinees on it. And it's really about building models for science and energy um, in a way that are going to support the nation. And in those settings, I imagine because there's university partners, there's other entities involved, that absolutely those types of considerations would be able to be considered. Because from the PNNL standpoint, there are many domains, really, that go into energy. You mentioned batteries. Well, that's mm-hmm. physics and chemistry and, and the grid. Materials. Is, yeah, and materials. So really, if you break down any of these domains, nothing is existing by itself. Absolutely. And one of the benefits of being at PNNL is we have amazing chemists and physicists and electrical engineers and computer scientists. And you know, we're able to bring all of these individuals together in a way that is compelling to address a lot of these grand challenges. And where we don't, we partner and we work with universities and other institutions as well. And just getting back to the Center for AI there at the PNNL, who populates it? Are you drawing in people that were in other areas of PNNL doing AI or bringing in new people? What are some of the functions Sure. So the functions itself, absolutely, it's meant to be both a benefit to the outside and have a a way for folks to see what we're doing in AI, but also internally, we do have members from across our different, what we call directorates, but that's the way we're organized. Today, there's roughly one-fifth of our scientists and engineers that are using machine learning in their work or artificial intelligence. And so all of these folks are associated with the center, and by doing so, they get access to resources, They get access to our own internal infrastructure. We also partner with hyperscalers and other organizations to be able to provide the infrastructure that's needed to do machine learning, et cetera. In addition to that, we're really all about workforce development and mentoring and bringing up the next cadre of workforce to really continue to grow the number of folks that are engaged in the application or the development of new AI that's going to really drive our science, energy, and security forward. And as someone who has degrees and PhDs in artificial intelligence, it's not a new field, but do you personally get the sense that suddenly the world has caught up to you and now this is the real deal? So I am super excited. I used machine learning in my PhD dissertation. It wasn't very good, but it did the job uh, and it continues to only get better. Now we have methods that scale to infinite amounts of data and you know we do need better methods that are more efficient, but I do believe there's a fundamental change in how we go about doing things, yet there is still more work to be done. You know, I will say that while we've seen decent success with specific applications like in chat, there really does need to be more research and investment into understanding how can we use these things for understanding biological function, for understanding materials, so that we can have more robust compounds for you know, space missions, so to say. You know, there's really all kinds of applications for these areas that are really important. 
And I do believe that machine learning and AI today is going to get us a lot further, but there's still a lot more work to be done. By no means is it a one-size-fits-all tool. You know, and as anybody that's used any of the open tools will tell you, like they still make errors. You know, there's a lot of concern about making sure it's safe, secure, trustworthy, that we develop these methods ethically. Well, to infinity and beyond, Dr. Court Corley is chief scientist for artificial intelligence in the AI and data analytics division of the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs 
are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming 
the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us 
to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.